Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On March 21st, 11 storytellers share their stories with our audience at Holyham Tap Room in downtown York. Our theme for the evening was foreign soil. We heard stories about vacations, studying abroad, working abroad, living abroad, airport adventures, being in unfamiliar territory, and even one about an overseas adoption. Brian R. Kane won with his story about visiting Ireland while studying James Joyce. Tall guy mics today. There we go. Okay. Hey, everybody. Um, For as long as I can remember, I have had a fascination and a love with the country of Ireland. So... It's March, it was St. Paddy's last week, and here I am still talking about Ireland. I won't stop. I will keep talking about it all year. I became fascinated when I found out early on. You know, you get asked early on when you're, you know, in third and fourth grade, hey, what are you? Even white people get that question, because we figure out if we're Polish or we're German or whatever, and I was, I asked my family, I said, what are we? They go, yeah, we're, we're kind of Irish. And I took that, and I've run with it my entire life. I have just kept going with it. I um, have read a lot of Irish literature. I play uh, Gaelic football and hurling, which are the national sports of Ireland. I have produced Irish plays. I have a green and white and orange tattoo on my body, um, and another one on the back of my leg that is the symbol for the National Theater of Ireland. I'm slightly obsessed, in case you didn't get that. and so in my senior year of college, a, a, a course offering came up that was just called James Joyce. That was the entire title of the class, and there was like a two-line description that I didn't really read because I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. James Joyce is a you know, brilliant Irish uh, novelist. I'm just going to do this. Now, we didn't spend the whole semester reading the body of work of James Joyce. It took us an entire semester just to read Ulysses his tome, Joyce's seminal work about our friend, my friend and yours, uh, Leopold Bloom, who spends a day walking through Dublin and just experiencing his life. And I'm reading through this book. We didn't have class in a classroom. There were only six of us in the class, so we just did it in the English department conference room. We read a chapter a week, and it was the most grueling, most difficult class I've ever taken. But somehow between the six of us, we figured out what the hell happened in this book. And I read a chapter of this book while I was on the plane to Ireland. It was the first time I was going. I had never been to Ireland before at 22, and it was my first time going by myself. I was going to do research for my history thesis which I was writing about the development of the Gaelic Athletic Association versus the development of the Australian Football Association, which if you want to talk for the next three hours about something, come talk to me later. Um, So I was going to do research on this, and one day after I had spent the entire day in the basement of a sports stadium in Dublin going through all their archives from the 1850s and 60s, I wanted to go and watch a hurling match. I heard that there was like a national semifinal for the college hurling matches going on, maybe a 20 minute walk that way. Well, I walked maybe six minutes that way and then I'm sure I veered off that way and then I'm sure I went this way and then somehow I ended up in a big wide circle and had no fucking idea where I was. 
But that's okay, because halfway through this walk, I started realizing that I was having a Bloom's Day. I was Leo Bloom. I was wandering through the streets of Dublin with no real idea where the heck I was going, and I was just okay with that. And I'm walking along this wee little street that's just sort of bending around, and there's, you know, 400-year-old walls on the side, and I see this little sign for a tiny little chapel called Sandy Mount Chapel. And I think, wow, that, I've, I've seen that name before, but it must have been, you know, in something I've read over the last 20 years. And I'm walking this room, oh, Sandy Mount Chapel. Leo runs in to Sandy Mount Chapel, and if, if, if Sandy Mount Chapel is there, that means, and I turn, and in front of me is the Irish Sea, is Sandy Mount Strand. Now, there's a chapter in the book that I read on the plane on the way to Ireland where Leo takes off his shoes, he steps onto Sandy Mount Strand and he walks, closes his eyes, and he walks toward the sea. Now, when it's high tide, the water comes right up to the road. When it's low tide, it's a half a mile out or more. So you can just take your shoes off and walk. And I did. I closed my eyes and I wrote a story in my head the way that Leo did. I don't know what I wrote, in that story in my head, I have no idea. But as I was walking for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, could have been three hours, I don't know. I was, I was in complete darkness, completely in my own head. Um, I hear a little murmur of cheers coming off in the distance. My eyes are closed and I turn and I follow this and the sand is wet on my feet and I can feel the water and then the sand starts to get a bit drier and I can start to feel grass and the murmur of the crowd of the yelling is getting louder and louder and louder and suddenly I'm scraping my feet in bushes and my eyes are still closed and I finally think I'm about to run into a road or something I should open my eyes and I open my eyes as the crowd is roaring and there's the hurling match I was looking for the whole time. I don't believe in fate or gods or things like that but that day Leo took me where I needed to go. Thank you. Brian earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up is Phil Broder. Phil recounted a stressful Indian airport adventure from his travels as a professional kite flyer. B-O-M. For those of you who don't know the three-letter codes of international airports, that little explosive combination means that you are in a city of 18 million people in the second most populous nation on earth, you've landed at the Chhatrapati Shivaji Airport in beautiful Mumbai, India. And I've been lucky enough to go to India several times in my, uh, believe it or not, capacity as a professional kite flyer. Yes, there is such a thing. I have business cards. I can show you later. And India is, if you've not been there, a sensory explosion. You get off the plane and leave the airport and the smell of curry and raw sewage detonates in your nose. The sound of horn honking, which is the national pastime of India, just beats a tattoo on your eardrums. And your eyeballs literally explode in your head when you report to baggage claim and are trying to find your bag amidst 500,000 people, all of whom, I kid you not, are named Patel. God's truth. 
So I'd already spent about a week and a half in uh, Ahmedabad, Surat, Porbandar, Kutch, sort of following the places where Gandhiji had already been, flying kites the whole way at the, inter at the uh, Gujarat International Kite Festival. And I was moving on through Mumbai, flying on to a little city of Belgaum for their first ever kite festival. And that just involved landing in Mumbai, switching from the massive Air India over to Kingfisher Airlines. Um, Kingfisher is the largest brewery in Asia. It's the equivalent of basically flying Air Budweiser. <laughs> so that means you have to collect your luggage. And when I fly with my kites, you know, I've got a large duffel bag and a small shoulder bag. And my kite bag is five and a half feet long, 75 pounds, bright orange ski bag stuffed full of ripstop nylon and carbon fiber. It is the dream piece of luggage to carry through a crowded airport. But I found all my bags. And my friend David, who's an experienced international traveler, will tell you that one of the sure signs of a civilized society is if they have free luggage carts at the airport. Mumbai does. Most American cities don't. I took my free luggage cart, got all my bags on it, precariously balanced my 75-pound kite bag on top, and set off in search of Kingfisher Airlines, which it turns out is in the next terminal, which means you have to leave the airport, go out onto the street, into a cacophony of trucks, cars, three-wheel tuk-tuk taxis, a couple of camels, a few monkeys sitting over on the curb, literally monkeys, four foot long tail, and you're wheeling your luggage cart through there, and I've got about 30 minutes until my flight, and I'm wheeling through this crowd and over like pieces of plywood that are covering holes in the street. There's a construction site, you gotta go around barriers, up and down curbs with your luggage cart. It's a lot of fun. And you get into the next terminal and your brain is starting to shut down. And I got into that terminal and looked around and had no idea where to go. And I'm standing there looking lost. And from the crowd, a savior arises. An Indian man, a skycap, comes up and says, Sir, you need help? I help. Come, 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 come. And he takes my luggage cart, pushes it past the crowds of people waiting in line at the ticket counters, goes right up to the counter, jumps over the counter, runs in back, comes back a few seconds later with a Kingfisher Airlines ticket agent who opens up a closed window and checks me in. Got my boarding pass in hand and my savior says, sir, x-ray, come, come. And we go over to the x-ray machine. And a kite bag contains a lot of things that make the TSA nervous. But this bag, he put it right up on the x-ray machine and breezes right through, no problem. Okay, sir, come, come. And we go along, about 50 yards away is the bag drop. You've got your bags x-rayed, now you've got to drop them off to go onto the plane. Go over there, he again goes right past the line, takes my bags right up front, hands them off. They're tagged and on their way. And things are going good. 25 minutes or so until the flight, I might make this. And we're headed toward that last security checkpoint, the one with the metal detector. And I know that he is not going to be able to go past the metal detector. 
and I've got to take care of this guy. He has made it possible for me to get this far and not miss the flight. And as we're surging along through the crowd, I reach back for my wallet and open it up, and the first thing I see is a 1,000. And I think, 1,000, that's too much. And at that moment, my brain just lost the ability to do international currency conversions. And we get to the metal detector, and there's two policemen there with submachine guns. And I reach into my wallet and grab the next note and hand it to him and say, thank you. And the crowd surges, and we push through the metal detector. And from behind me, I hear this voice of disbelief say, really? And about five minutes later, as I'm heading into, you know, out the gate to the plane, I realize I'd given him a 50 rupee note, about 38 cents. I try to be a good ambassador when I go to other countries, but every now and then, I am the ugly American. Thank you. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Aaron Lewis, who told us about a hardworking family acquaintance from when he was a child in Bahrain. When people ask where I'm from originally, um, I normally just say Texas because it's a lot easier to say than, well, I was born in South Carolina, but I don't have any memory of that because we moved to Texas and then to Alabama and then to Mississippi and then to Bahrain and then to Texas again and then finally to Pennsylvania, which usually begs the question, what's a Bahrain? Um, and then I get to tell them about this wonderful island nation off the coast of Saudi Arabia, uh, in which I had the pleasure of living during its last years as a actual kingdom uh, under the reign of Sheikh Isa bin Salman al Khalifa, who was a pretty cool dude as far as kings are concerned. Um, but I, it was the best period of my developmental years and arguably of my life. Um, I absolutely fell in love with that part of the world. Um, I, Loved the food, the music, the language. I don't speak it very well, um, primarily the food. Uh, I also have a borderline unhealthy obsession with dromedary camels. That's the ones with one hump because the two hump guys are assholes. Um, <laughs> seriously, they're dicks. But, um, but yeah, my, my dad was military and, and his job during the time that we were there uh, was to sell uh, fighter jets to the Bahrainis. So he was working with the Bahrainis, obviously, and also with civilian contractors um, whose job it was to import and store all this stuff in these giant warehouses uh, where they kept everything from tanks to can openers and everything in between. Um, more on that later. So <clears throat> the Kingdom of Bahrain is about 15 miles east to west about 30 miles north to south. It's tiny, but there's a lot of really great stuff packed in that little uh, tiny island nation. Um, and in the northeast corner of the island is the capital city of Manama. And Manama is just this, well, I haven't been there in a while, but it was this magical place where you could go down uh, side alleys where there's street vendors um, you know, wheeling around these big earthen ovens and slapping naan bread on the inside. Um, and then you go around the corner and you're in this incredibly modern contemporary gold market where there's more gold, silver, and precious gems than you could 
possibly fathom um, in your wildest dreams. Uh, but there was a parking lot in downtown Manama um, where there was a gentleman who washed cars for tips. And this gentleman went by the traditional Arabic name of Matthew. Um, <clears throat> and Matthew had this magical ability to take a dirty bucket of water and a dirty rag and make your car look like it just rolled off the lot. We had the only Ford Bronco on the island. It was pretty great. Um, actually, the Crown Prince stopped my mom one time and offered to buy it from her on the spot. That's another story. Um, but we came to like Matthew, and Matthew came to like us. We treated him very well. He treated us very well. Uh, and I would get excited when we went to downtown Manama to do whatever, and we'd park and I'd jump out of the car and Matthew would come up and I'd say, Marhaba Mahdi, Assalamu Alaikum. And he'd say, Wa Alaikum Assalam, Kaifa Haruk. And I would say, Bekhair, Alhamdulillah, Wa Anta. And he would say, Bekhair, Alhamdulillah. And then we'd switch to English because that's all the Arabic I know. And, um, but Matthew had a family, he had a, a wife and kids, and he supported them washing cars for tips in downtown Manama. Um, now back to my dad's job. Um, as our period in Bahrain was coming to an end, he called up one of these contractors that ran one of the warehouses and said, hey, you ever go to downtown Manama? And the guy says, yeah, I love that place. It's pretty great. He said, do you ever park in that one parking lot on Bakalakadak Street or whatever? And he goes, yeah, the one with the guy that washes cars. He said, Matthew, yeah, yeah, he's a great dude. And my dad said, yeah, why don't you hire him? And the guy said, you know, it never crossed my mind. That's a great idea. I'm going to talk to him next time I go down there. And so one of our last times going to downtown Manama, uh, same old routine, Matthew comes up, but this time he has this, uh, this black jewelry box. So bear in mind, Matthew went from washing cars with a bucket of dirty water and a dirty rag to having a government job overnight with benefits and paid time off and sick leave and all the things that I'm still trying to get <laughs> overnight. And in Matthew's culture, it's considered rude to accept a gift if you can't give something of equal value in return. So Matthew comes up and he gives this black jewelry box to my dad and my dad opens it up and it's this solid gold bracelet that must have cost more than Matthew made in the last year as a thank you for making that five minute phone call. So I learned a lot in those few years of my life as a child in the Middle East. Um, one of the things I learned is that if you can do something for someone else, do it. Because a five minute phone call to someone might be worth its weight in gold to someone else. The other thing that I learned and I believe to this day is I, I refuse to accept the idea that everyone over there wants to cut my head off. Thank you. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Storytelling events will return to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. Tickets for our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at yorkstoryslam as well as on Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. 
Our podcast is produced with support from The Beer Ace. Find them at thebeerace.com. This episode comes to you with support from this month's featured brewery partner, Star Hill Brewery. We hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Carla Wilson of Wilson Media Services. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson. You can learn more at wilsonmediaservices.com.